Good morning. Welcome to Calvary Chapel. You can turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3 verse 1 is where we left off last time. So turn your Bibles there. We're, um, we're doing a sermon today titled Paving the Way. And there's nothing like a freshly paved road for smoothness, is there? I mean, in our, behind our house, they just paved the road like last summer. And um, it was kind of cool. Now my kids love to ride their bikes back there and their skateboards because it's nice and smooth and there's no gravel or rocks or anything. They can just ride back and forth. It's really fun. Not too much traffic. But I was noticing how smooth that was looking and, and then looking at my driveway. And I have asphalt on my driveway and then a, a concrete car pad, a, a carport. And then beyond that, there's some gravel. And, and I have, ever since we moved in there in 2012, we have this sinkhole that happened like right on the edge of the concrete and basically it sunk down and now there's like this bump like four inches down and so every time I drove into my driveway it was bump bump and then driving out bump bump you know driving over this stupid bump and every day I, not, I kid you not every day I would look at that thing and think I'm gonna fix that someday I gotta fix that and, and that's what I do around my house as things are messed up or need to be you know dealt with I, I think about them for a while and like think of different ways to fix it well as they're fixing the road behind me, I was like, man, it would be really easy for them to fix this <laughs> instead of me. And, and so I was, I'd wander back there as they're working and stuff. And, you know, they were never really like right. I was just hoping I'd like run into the guy. They were parking, parking this big giant truck right in front of my, right in front of my, or right behind my house. So I was going to go back there and ask him, but I never did. And I'm kind of shy, you know, when it comes to that stuff. You don't want to just go up to people. Hey, will you come fix my driveway? But Jeff Pelagi was, my stepdad was, was at our house and he's like, I'm not shy, I'll go ask him. So we went and chased him down and worked out some deal. He got to come look at this. You guys got to come fix this, you know, and, and they came over and looked at it and he worked out some deal, something to do with beverages. I don't want to know about it, but anyway, he worked it out and, um, they brought a, a, a back over and, or a front loader and they dumped some in and they pounded it down and it's all smooth and everything. And I, I tell you, man, every time I drive out of my driveway, I am so thankful. And I, 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 mean, I just want to lay on top of it and just like, oh, this is it's so nice to have that fixed. And so last weekend I thought, you know what, I need to finish this job because in the back there's like puddles and mud and stuff where the gravel's been all worn away and there's holes and stuff. So I'm going to fix that. So I went and got two yards of, of road mix and I went out there last week and I shoveled it all in there and smoothed it all out. And now it's like driving on glass. No, it's not like that. It's, it's still bumpy, but it's not nearly as bad. It's pretty smooth. It's nice. And so, you know, just a, a nice smooth path, you know, nothing like that. And, and we know all about rough roads, don't we? You're driven down South John's between Maine and the highway. You know, that's like living in a third world or something like that, you know? It's, it's, it'll be nice when they finish that. It's all smooth again, right? You know, and, and that's what we love. And, and, and that's exactly what John the Baptist's ministry was, to fix a highway, but not the same type of highway as we will see. Let's turn to, to Luke chapter 3 if you're not there yet. And stand with me if you will. <clears throat> Luke chapter 3. The word of the Lord. Now, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, his, his brother Philip tetrarch of Idaria, and the region of Trachonitis, and Lysanias, Tetrarch of Abilene. While Annas and Caiaphas were high priests, the word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. 
And he went into all the region around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight, and the rough ways smooth, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Then he said to the multitudes that came out to be baptized by him, Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And, and even now the axe is laid at, to the root of the tree. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So the people asked him, saying, What shall we do then? He answered and said to them, He who has two tunics, let him give to him who has none. And he who has food, let him do likewise. Then the tax collectors also came to be baptized. And he sa they said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than what is appointed for you. Likewise, the soldiers asked him, saying, And what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not intimidate anyone or accuse falsely, and be content with your wages. Now as the people were in expectation, and all reasoned in their hearts about John, whether he was the Christ or not, John answered, saying to all, I indeed baptize you with water. But one mightier than I is coming, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. He will baptize you in the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out the threshing floor and gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. And with many other exhortations he preached to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, being rebuked by him concerning Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, and for all the evils which Herod had done, also added this above all, that he shut John up in prison. And when all the people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus also was baptized. And while he prayed, the heaven was open, and the Holy Spirit descended in bodily form like a dove upon him. And the voice came from heaven, which said, You are my beloved, you are my beloved Son, in you I am well pleased. And Father, we thank you for this text. And we just ask that you would open our hearts to the things that you have for us this morning, Lord. As we look at these things concerning repentance, concerning your salvation, I pray, Jesus, that you would speak to us, that you'd help us, Lord, that you'd reveal yourself afresh to us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So in the Gospel of Luke, our, our whole narrative started out with John the Baptist. You remember Zacharias and Elizabeth, um, Zacharias serving in the temple and the angel appearing to him saying that you're going to have a son, your, your prayers have been heard, your prayers are going to be answered, you're going to bear a son. Zacharias didn't believe him, so the angel struck him mute. And then his wife being told that they were going to have a child, you know, of course, being old, as Zacharias explained it, that he was old and that she was well stricken in years, um, that she was like, you know, my reproach has been taken. My reproach of men has been taken away from me. And so she hid herself six months and um, after that revealed herself that she was going to have a baby. And then, of course, the, the announcement to Mary by the same angel Gabriel that she was going to have a son, that he was going to be the Christ. And then John the Baptist's birth. And at his birth, 
Um, his parents said some interesting things. You remember um, his mom um, had prophesied over Jesus and her son. But then in Luke chapter 1, verse 76 and 80, when Zacharias' tongue was loosed, after he acknowledged that John was um, going to be named John, he prophesied over John saying this, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the highest, for you will go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways to give the knowledge of salvation to his people by the remission of their sins through the tender mercies of our God which, with which the day spring from on high has visited us, to give light to those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. So the child grew and became strong in spirit and was in desert places till the day of his manifestation to Israel. And so this is now 18 years later. You know, after our last chapter, when we saw in, in chapter um, chapter 2, at the end of chapter 2, Jesus, you know, being lost by Mary and Joseph, he was 12 years old. Now, 18 years after that chapter, um, 30 years since chapter 1, John is now 30, 31, somewhere in there, and he starts his ministry. But what's interesting about this is it says that he was, be- from the time he was young, and no doubt, Zacharias being old and his wife being well-stricken in years, they probably died when John was pretty young. And from that time, it seems, as we see here in chapter 1 and again here in chapter 3, that John has been living out in the desert, which is a little strange, right? You have this kid who grows up kind of solitary out in the desert. Now, some people believe that John was taken in by the white-robed Essenes who lived a cloistered life out in Qumran. You know, you've heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Um, they wrote all those scrolls, and they, they were kind of a, a, a monkish-type group that lived out in the middle of the desert and studied and, and lived that monastic lifestyle. Probably not, because it tells us in, in Matthew chapter 3, verse 4, it says, Now John himself was clothed in camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. That doesn't sound like a monk. That sounds more like Captain Caveman, if you're old enough to remember Captain Caveman. You know, Captain Caveman! You know that, that guy? Okay, never mind. It doesn't matter. But, you know, kind of more like Elijah the prophet, living out in the desert by himself, eating grasshoppers. You know, and that was, that was kosher. They actually could. There was, there's a whole list of it in the book of Leviticus on the grasshoppers or the locusts that you can eat. You can eat the swarming locusts. You can eat the crawling locusts. You can eat the bald locusts. You have to make sure that you, they're bald, though. You have to check it with a magnifying glass to make sure they don't have any hair. I don't know. Um, but whatever the case is, this is a kosher thing you can eat. And then wild honey, you know, chasing off the bees and getting the honey out of the high. I mean, this is caveman stuff, you know. And, and wearing this camel hair and leather belt. You know, some people speculate that, that this outfit that he was wearing was actually the outfit, and, and this, it kind of makes some sense, and it's just speculation, we don't really know, but it was actually the mantle of Elijah. And that's what was so significant about this. You know, it's, it's very similar. Remember, Elijah was described as a hairy man with a leather belt. You know, and, and so, it, you know, was it? We don't know. But interesting, Luke contrasts John and his lifestyle with some other people here in verse 1. Notice, now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, means a ruler of a fourth, his brother Philip tetrarch of Iterea, he's another ruler of a fourth in the region of Trachonitis, and Licinius tetrarch of Abilene, well, Annas and Caiaphas were high priests, and the word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, 
in the wilderness. And so um, Luke, what he does for us is he dates these things for us. He, you know, we know this is the 15th year of Tiberius Caesar. And then he tells us that it's when Pontius Pilate was governing, you know, uh, really he was, he was governing that Tetrarch, that fourth part, which was the region of, of Judea. But then you have Herod and Philip and um, Lys- whatever his name was, Lysinus. Licinius. Um, these, these guys that were the sons of Herod the Great. Now, you get all confused because there's all these, there's Herod Agrippa, there's Herod Antipas, there's Herod the Great, and all these, all these guys are just called Herod. As you go through the Bible, you're like, this guy lived a long time, but wait a minute, didn't he die? You know, and, and so what we have is Herod the Great. Herod the Great was a wicked king. Um, he built the, he, he refaced the temple, rebuilt the temple precincts. He was, he was very loved by the Jews for that, but he was also just a really treacherous guy. He's the guy who killed the innocents of Bethlehem. Remember when, when Jesus was a young child, he had all the children under two years old slaughtered in Bethlehem. Um, just a wicked, wicked king. He killed his favorite wife because he thought she was conspiring against him. You know, just all this stuff. And so he died, um, killed several of his sons, but he had enough sons that he, he gave up his kingdom when he died to four of his sons. And they each were a tetrarch. And so he was a king, a vassal king of the region of Israel during his reign. Um, but he was also a vassal king under the Roman Empire. So he just ruled over this small section. But then when he died, four parts of that were broken up and given to his sons. And now in Judea, because of the tension there, um, Pilate is governing that section. But his other sons are still tetrarchs of these other regions. And so what, what Luke is doing is he's kind of pinpointing everything for us, helping us know these are who, who's in charge during this time. And these are the people who are the high priests, Annas and Caiaphas. Now, we know, if you know anything about Jewish law, there's only one high priest, right? But this is an interesting time because um, Valerian, who was, you know, important and, and high official, did not like, uh, Valerian Gratuus did not like um, Annas, and he was the high priest, and so he basically deposed him and put his son-in-law, um, Caiaphas, in his place and recognized him as the Romans, recognizing him as the high priest. But the Jews didn't recognize him as the high priest. They recognized the rightful high priest as Annas. And so there was two. There was a religious high priest and there was a political high priest, and they were related, and so they were both serving as high priest at that time together. It's kind of a unique situation. But this is when all this happened. But notice, it was during this time that the word of the Lord came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. In other words, there's all these people, politically elite, political elites, these powerful people, who everyone who was over, in some way, the region of Judea and that area, people who were ruling, either through the Roman government or people who were ruling um, in the religious realm, which was Annas and Caiaphas. And God didn't... didn't come to them. The word of the Lord did not appear to any of them, not to the elites. Instead, the word of the Lord came to this guy who's eating locusts and wild honey, living out in the wilderness, in the Judean wilderness, out in, by, the, by the Jordan River. That's kind of interesting. And talk about being separate. He's been out there a long, long time. And all of a sudden, the word of the Lord comes to him and all these rich and powerful people. You know, I think that's an interesting thing. Because when you think about John being separate from everything and all the the drama and all the gossip and all the news and all the happenings that were happening and important people that were moving, shaking. He was separate from all of that stuff. You know, and I think sometimes that's a good thing. 
I don't know about you, but I've been watching way too much news. In fact, it's almost hard to get away from it lately. And I torture myself. I'm not good to myself at all because I will watch Fox News, but I'll also watch CNN, which is like completely the opposite. I just want to see, you know, if what these guys are saying is, you know, truly what those guys are saying and just kind of seeing, okay, what's going on here. And, and it's just infuriating. Now, I have to watch every night because if I don't watch it every night, then, then something might happen and then I won't know that it happened, right? Because if I, if I watch it, then it can change things. No, probably not, because <laughs> I've yelled at my TV a lot and nothing has changed. In fact, it just gets worse and worse and worse, right? And so, you know, I, I, I just wonder about this, and I, I think about this. I think I have a, a fantasy, and I think we probably all have had this same fantasy to, like, go and live with the Amish for, like, 30 years. <laughs> if they weren't so legalistic and weird, like, I would totally do that. Like, just cut myself off from all the stuff that's going on and, like, churn butter and build barns and, you know, I, I wouldn't be so worried about what's happening in the White House because I would be busy hitching my horse and combing it out to go to town. <laughs> you, know, I mean, you know, it's just a, it's a, simple, a simpler life, you know, and, and I think we get so bogged down, and John was completely cut off from all of that. He's living in desert places. His, his companionship is the Lord and the wild beasts out there. And, and he would just talk to the Lord and hear from the Lord and, and then really didn't even have a platform when you think about it. He, he's just this guy living out there by himself, separated from the noise. It says, verse 3, and he went into the region around the Jordan. This is all wilderness. There's, there's not any towns real close to the Jordan. Preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sin. So he starts to preach. He's early 30s. He's out in the Judean wilderness. Preaching not in the streets of Jerusalem. Not even in Bethany or Bethlehem. He's out in the wilderness preaching. And so you figure the people that are coming out there, people that are maybe going out to bring a load of laundry out to the river to, to rinse their laundry out, or, or maybe they're going out there to, to play in the water, to fish. And so a few people here and there, and he just, he's, he just comes out of the bushes. Repent! <laughs> and they're like, what? What is this guy? You know, He doesn't have an Instagram account or a Facebook page. He doesn't have a YouTube channel, nothing like that. There's no platform that this guy has. It's just people happen to wander by, you know, traveling through, and he's like coming out. Repent! You know? And, and literally what he's saying to them, and, and this is kind of an interesting um, a metaphor for our day, I suppose. But what he's saying to them is, turn or burn. Turn or burn. You know, we use that. I'm sure that what he said was exactly the same as turn and burn, but he didn't rhyme like I do. And that's what his message was. Repent. In fact, it tells us in Matthew chapter 3, verse 2, that his message was repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What does it mean to repent? What is he talking about? You know, it doesn't mean necessarily that I'm going to fix everything in my life that's wrong. What it means is I'm turning. The word repent just means to do a 180, to turn around and go the opposite direction. In other words, right now in my life, I might be living for sin and living for pleasure and living for whatever it is that I think is going to satisfy my flesh. When I repent, I say, okay, I don't want to live for that anymore. I'm going to turn from sin. But there's also repentance on the other side of it is turning toward God. So repentance means to turn around, do a 180. Some, I was listening to a preacher one time and he says, we need to repent. We need to do a 360. I'm like, wait a minute, that's going the same direction I was. I just turned around and just kept going the same direction. He needs to learn his math. There's like his angles and such. 
No, repenting is doing a 180 and going the opposite direction. In other words, I don't want my wrecked, ruined, destroyed life that I've been living. I want to live now for God. I want to turn toward God. I want to open my heart toward God. And this is what John is doing. He's trying to draw people into repentance so that they can be a child of God. Now, this is interesting because Mark and Luke both tell us the same thing, that this baptism was a baptism of repentance. But then it said something that kind of, kind of confused me, actually. As I read it, I, I thought, that's weird. You know? And, and I, I checked the other Gospels. I read through all the other Gospel accounts to see if any of the other ones said the same thing. And it was, it was Mark and Luke that said it. And then I went and checked my notes when I talked through the book of Mark. And I, I wondered if I caught it the first time, and I didn't really catch it. That he says it's for the remission of sins. I thought, that's weird. I mean, why would John announce that he is baptizing for the remission of sins? Because that would be something that would upset people, right? I mean, if, if he's saying that their sins could be forgiven them, that their sins could be washed away, and that's what the word remission means, to be taken away, to take away their sins, is baptism for that? And so as I read more, I realized that what he's doing is he's taking from what his father had prophesied over him. And that was in Luke chapter 1, verse 76 through 78. And we, we saw this already, but I'm going to read it again. It says, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the highest, for you will go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people by the remission of their sins through the tender mercies of our God, with which the day spring from on high has visited us. And so, in other words, the baptism wasn't what washed away their sins, but the baptism is what clued them into that they were a sinner and that, that he would point to the one who would take away their sins. And that's what he means by the day spring who's come to us to point them towards that salvation that's to come. But baptism wasn't something that the average Jew would do. In fact, it was, it was kind of offensive to them to, to, to suggest that you Jews have to be baptized. Baptism was for one thing in their mind. Baptism is for somebody who is becoming a Jew. They were a Gentile, they had been living in the world, now they're a God-fearer, and from a God-fearer they say, I want to be a proselyte, I want to convert to Judaism, which was kind of an interesting thing. When they converted to Judaism, they would baptize them, symbolically washing off the dirt of the world, because all the world is dirty, except for Israel. The dust of other lands, literally, if you carried your, your goods through a land that was not Jewish, it would have to be washed and cleansed or burned and destroyed because it was unclean because the dust from other lands were unclean. That's what they believed. And so they were washing you of all that nastiness and now you can become a Jew because you're a filthy sinner, but now you're a Jew. And so you're no longer, you're of the children of Israel, so you're no longer a sinner. In fact, that's what they believed. If you were born into Israel, a son of Abraham, you were saved by virtue of the fact of your birthright. And if you were born in the land, it was sure that you were going to make it into heaven. They, they would say, you know, and Edersheim tells us that they would say, being buried in the land of Israel is like being buried under the altar. You got a sure ticket. Well, John was upending all of that. John was saying, no, you Jews, you need to be baptized. You need to Turn from your sin and the filth of your own sin. And so this baptism was a baptism of repentance. Not the same baptism that we partake of. We see that in, in, 
in uh, Acts chapter 19 when Paul goes to Ephesus and they'd only been baptized in the baptism of John. He says, surely John baptized the baptism of repentance, but you need to be baptized into Jesus Christ, which we understand is a burial with Jesus and a resurrection symbolically of Jesus. So we're baptized differently than this. But John here, he's he's now doing this baptism. Um, The the Pharisees sent representatives out there um, to to question John about who he was and why he would baptize Jews. Are you, they asked him, are you the the Messiah? Are you Elijah? Are you the the prophet that Moses talked about? Are you the one who was better than Moses that would come? And and John said, no, 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 I'm not any of those. And, And they said to him in John chapter one, verse 25, they asked him saying, why then do you baptize if you're not the Christ? nor Elijah, nor the prophet. In other words, there is no reason anybody but those three could ever have any authority to claim that a Jew or that a child of Israel would need to be baptized. And so we understand that baptism wasn't something that was going to, to, to take away their sin, but they were, they were pretty upset that he would do this. His baptism, however, was literally to prepare their hearts to get them thinking about their life and where it's going and the direction it's headed. And maybe I need to turn from some things in my life. Maybe I need to start thinking about what would please God and what what type of life God would appreciate. And this is what his baptism was about. In John chapter 1, verse 29, Jesus would come on the scene and, and John would say this. This is the next day John saw Jesus coming toward him And he said, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. And so the remission of sin, John would would clarify that he's the one. He's the Lamb of God that's going to take away your sin. And they they would understand what he meant by that. They understood that because of their sin, they had a sacrifice to God. That something had to die in in their place. And now he's saying that that person is. For, for the Jew, for the person who wants to be saved, is Jesus Christ. And so it is for us. So it is for every single one of us to repent and to turn to Jesus Christ for salvation. To say, I don't want my sin anymore. I don't want to live for the things I've been living for anymore. I want to live now the life that God wants me to live. That's what repentance is. Verse 4 says, it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet saying, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain or hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight and the rough ways smooth. And all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He's he's here quoting Isaiah 40, verse 3 through 5. And in quoting this, he's saying that God is, is sending out the engineers. He's sending out the engineers because a king is coming And whenever a king would come to a region, you know, and there's a planned visit, this king's going to come into our region, they would make a king's highway. They'd send out engineers, and they had engineers, just like we have today. They would draw up plans, they would have everything worked out, and they would take um, big hills, you know, giant slave force to get out there. Now we have big machines that do it, but they would basically chew up the hills, they'd dig up the hills, and dump all the dirt out into the valleys, and they would make a, a long highway that was smooth that, so that the king could come and he could drive into town and not spill his tea or whatever, right? He could drive across that, 
nice smooth road. They'd fill in all the holes. They'd fix everything up. When you come into town, all the buildings would be refaced and beautiful. Every, every crack would be filled. Everything would be patched. Everything would be smooth for the king to come in to represent his honor. And that's what they would do. In fact, we still do this today. If you've driven on the freeway, you see that they do that. You know, you're driving down the freeway. The freeway's a little bit raised up, maybe. But then sometimes you drive by and you see where they've cut the hill so the freeway can go through it, right? And they take that dirt and they push it down into the valley and they pack it down and they put the road over it so you just have this nice, smooth, hill, smooth road. I'm always amazed when I'm riding on the freeway. To, it, it's overwhelming, really, to look at this asphalt and realize I could drive from here to Los Angeles and never leave the pavement, and then all the way to New York City and never leave the pavement. That's crazy to me. And not just that, but just, I, and this is just my brain, I'm just thinking about the engineering that went into that. As I go around a corner and I see how the, the whole thing banks so that 80 miles an hour I don't just slide off the road, it like banks and so I'm like hugging the road around the corner and it just all slopes and everything's engineered perfectly so that I can drive my car down this road. It's, it's a beautiful thing. And so it was back in those days, they would make a nice smooth path for the king's chariot or the king's cart to go through there. So it'd be smooth. So it'd be a highway to God. And we have the same thing here. I don't know if you noticed, but Freeze Out Hill, you know, that thing is, is engineered. Like there used to be a big mountain there. They cut that mountain out. They blew it up. They bulldozed it down and they pushed all the dirt down below so that you can go through a cut. You notice, have you guys ever heard that? Somebody's like, oh, I'm losing you. I'm going through the cut. Anybody ever say that to you on the phone? I'm going through the cut, which means I'm going where they cut the mountain out and put the road through the middle of it so we can have a nice, smooth ride down into Emmett's, that, that, that Shangri-La view that we get as we drive down into Emmett and the whole valley opens up and we get to live here. It's amazing. And, and that's, that's what they would do. They'd, they'd make it nice and smooth so you didn't have to go down the switchback or the windy, twisty road or up and down bumps and hills. That, that's what John's job was, to make a highway to God, a smooth path to God into your heart. That's what this was about. To, to feel in that which was broken, to heal that which was bruised, and to fix and restore what needed to be fixed and restored. John's job was to make a highway. And that comes through repentance. Repentance. You know, this is a lost art today. You know, there's many churches that don't preach repentance at all. In fact, they're just happy to say, you know, God loves you, has a wonderful plan for your life. If you, if you just accept him into your heart, he'll come and live there and everything will be wonderful. Is that really what the gospel is? No, the gospel is you're a filthy sinner and you are, you've offended God and you are wrecked and your life is destroyed and you need to turn from your sin and accept the salvation of God because God sent his only son to die for your sins. You know, it's not just about accepting Jesus. It's that he died on the cross because you were a sinner and you need a savior. You need to turn from that junk and run from that and say, God, I want what you want in my life. That's what true repentance is. And that's what John was calling them to do, to change the way that they lived. There needs to be repentance. Without repentance, there is no salvation. I need to accept Jesus that he died for my sins. And, and therefore, if he died for my sins, shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Paul says, Romans 6, 1, God forbid. How could we who died to sin 
Keep sinning. Keep living in sin. And so we turn from our sin and we come to Jesus and we ask him to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us. And he does. But until we recognize that we're a sinner, until we recognize the bad news, we really don't ever understand the good news. If we don't think that we're a sinner, we don't realize that we need a savior. And that's where the Jews were. They didn't realize. They didn't think that they were sinners. But John would tell them differently. Verse 7, it says, And he said to the multitudes who came out to be baptized, Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Those people were coming, brood of vipers. Jeez. Therefore, verse 8, bear fruits worthy of repentance and do not begin to say to yourself, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. This kind of gives us a clue as to where maybe John was baptizing. We know that it's not the traditional site. The traditional site they have along the Jordan River up in the, in the Decapolis, which John wasn't baptizing in the Decapolis. He was baptizing in the wilderness of Judea, which would have been probably right around the, the area of Jericho. It's a little bit north um, east of Jerusalem, along the Jordan River there. The place where the children of Israel crossed the Jordan River into the Promised Land before they defeated Jericho. Now, what clues us into that? Well, first of all, it tells us that he was preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Second, he makes reference to these stones. Now, remember Joshua chapter 4, the children of Israel are crossing over the Jordan River on dry ground. The priests went in with the ark. Their feet went into the water. The, the Jordan River stopped and dried up and it piled up as a heap in, on one side. And the people walked through on dry ground. And he commanded the men one man out of every tribe to take a stone from the bottom of the river and to set it up as an ensign, as a, as a reminder that God did this for the children of Israel. And so it was 12 stones piled up that when their children asked, what is this pile of stones for? They could say, God delivered the children of Israel, the, the land of, of promise into the children of Israel's hand. And, and so that st those stones were there. And, and it said to the day, you know, back in, in Joshua, and, and potentially they were still there during the time of John the Baptist, and he was referring to those stones possibly, that God could raise up children of Israel from these stones. You know, and so it's, it's very possible that was the case. They were saying they were children of Abraham. They didn't need to repent. He says, don't say you're a child of Abraham. God can get his children from somewhere else. And didn't he? Think about how many of us are Jews. No, he, he used... He used the salvation of Jesus Christ to bring the light to the Gentiles as well, as the scriptures would say. And even now, he's saying, verse 9, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. He's speaking of them. You guys are being ready to be cut down. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. John apparently didn't ever read how to win friends and influence people. He was just coming at him, you know, with aggressive turn or burn. And that's literally what he, his message is. Turn or burn. You know, maybe we've heard that before. Hellfire and brimstone preaching. And that's what John was giving them. You know, and so that, that begs the question, how should we be a witness to our friends and neighbors and relatives? Or how should we preach to people? Should we bring that message, turn or burn? Maybe. 
I guess, I guess it really just depends on the situation or what God is putting in our heart. I kind of feel like as we see the world unravel before our eyes, that we maybe think Jesus is coming back soon, which everybody should always think that. Even if he doesn't come back for another hundred years, we should live as though Jesus could come back tomorrow. And, and maybe right now as things are crazy within the world, this is the message that needs to be brought to people. The judgment of God is coming. We need to turn from our sin. We need to follow Jesus. There's no time to mess around. You know, I think that's the, the repentance preaching is something that's needed. However, I think that that's not necessarily the normal everyday preaching that we should do. Jude kind of unpacks this for us in, in his little book, one chapter in verse 22. He said this, On some have compassion... Making a distinction or making a difference, you know, making a difference in people's life. You're having, you're compassionate towards them. You're encouraging towards them. You're making a difference. It kind of reminds me of, you know, a saying St. Francis of Assisi said, you know, he says, preach the gospel to every creature and if necessary, use words. I, I think it is necessary to use words no matter what, but um, you, you get the point of what he's saying. He's saying that we should always be an example of the gospel in everything that we do, in the way that we conduct our business, in the way that we live our lives, in the simplicity, in the love, in the, in the caring that we have towards others. And, and then when, when people see that example in our lives, when they see the light in us, then they will glorify God. They will want, it, want what we have. But, he said, continuing in Jude, Jude verse 23, but others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. In other words, most of the time you're just supposed to be kind and compassionate and loving and benevolent towards people and, and telling them about Jesus and how he loves them. And other times you just need to say, hey, you're going to go to hell if you, don't, if you don't repent. You need to change your life. You're, you're ruining your life. You're ruining and destroying everyone around you. You need to repent or you're going to go to hell. And, and that's, I think that's a message that needs to be spoken sometimes. And so both are necessary, and depending on the context. And of course, this was necessary because the kingdom of God was at hand. Why was the kingdom of God at hand then? Because Jesus was walking amongst them. And wherever Jesus is, there his kingdom is. And so too it is in your life. If he's living in you, his kingdom is here, in you. Matthew chapter 3, verse 7 tells us it was the Pharisees and Sadducees that he called a brood of vipers. You know, I, I love that. You know, it wasn't just the average people that were coming. It was specifically them. He saw the religious leaders coming to him. This is how Jesus felt about religious leaders. Well, that's kind of scary because what am I? You know, and it makes you think about it. You know, as a, as a pastor, you know, wait a minute. Am I, am I living in a way that, that would offend Jesus? Or am I representing him? Because certainly they were supposed to represent him, but certainly they were not. You know, why weren't they? What, what, was about, what was it about the Pharisees and the Sadducees that were so offensive to John and so offensive to Jesus? Well, because they were, they were hypocrites. Remember he said that you're, you're like whitewashed tombs. You look beautiful on the outside, but inside you're full of dead men's bones. What did that mean? Well, the Pharisees, they were very strict. They were very by the book. Man, they, they searched the scriptures. They followed every single rule that they followed, and they demanded everyone in their order or in their sector, their followers, to follow every rule, to keep the law to the best of their ability. The Sadducees were not. They were more of the liberal. They didn't really believe in the afterlife. They didn't really believe in those types of things, but they were getting rich off the people as they sold temples and exchanged money in the temple courts because they were the high priests. They were in charge. 
And so you have, you know, the, the, the liberals who are in charge of everything, and then you have the conservatives who are fighting them, but they're kind of all kind of working together, and really what they were working for is for the elites to be, stay elite and for the, the, the basic people to be disregarded. Does that sound familiar? The conservatives, I mean, literally, in their day, they were the Republicans and the Democrats. That's who they were. The, the, the politicians, and that's exactly the offices that they hold. And so he calls them to repentance. You brood of vipers. You guys are liars. You guys are snakes. You, th- you say you represent God, but you don't. And, and Jesus wasn't about religion, and neither should we be. It's not about religion. It's about loving Jesus. It's about knowing him. It's not being... Um, a partisan or, or this or that. It's about realizing this is a world that needs salvation. And we might align ourselves more as a conservative or maybe you align yourself more as a liberal. But at the end of the day, none of those labels matter. What we need is the love of Jesus because people, whether they have conservative values or liberal values, are headed for hell and they need the salvation of God. And that's what John was saying to them. He says in verse 10, So the people asked him, saying, What shall we do then? And he answered and said to them, He who has two tunics, let him give to him who has none, and he who has food, let him do likewise. Super practical. I mean, he's not like telling them to, you know, do a bunch of, you know, get rid of everything. You know, he's just super practical. If you have two tunics, anybody here have two tunics? You're like, I don't even own a tunic. No, you have lots of tunics. They're all in in your closet, you know? You have a lot of tunics. I have a lot of tunics. I was looking at my closet at all my tunics this morning, and I was picking shirts, and I had to find a shirt that was first ironed and second um, fat clothes, because I'm in fat mode right now and not in skinny mode. And I have a whole bunch for skinny, and I have a whole bunch for fat, and I just kind of vacillate between the two. I mean, actually, if I'm honest, slightly fat and very fat. You know, that's, that's kind of where I, I live, you know. And I'll lose some weight and wear the skinnier clothes and then I'll get, and so I just kind of vacillate. It keeps my clothes fresh. And, and, and then I, I look in my fridge and I have a lot of food. You know, I, I think that it's, it's probably, in our day and age, it's, it's maybe not so much those things, but what do you have a lot of, maybe money, and somebody else needs to take a gas, you know, to, to share with those who are in need. That's what he's saying. How do, how, how do we serve the orphans and the widows? You know, those types of things. When we think about our lives. How am I serving people? You know, am I just selfish about everything I have? Or am I, I'm, am I giving to those who are in need? That's what he's saying. It's just it's so simple. Verse 12, he says, Then tax collectors also came um, to be baptized. And he said to them, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than is appointed for you. Uh, well, what did that mean? In their day, I was reading Edersheim on this. We, he, you know, he was kind of going through the, the times of Jesus and how this whole tax collector thing worked. And basically how it worked was each, each tax collector was given a region or an area that they were to collect taxes. And every area was assessed by the Roman government a certain amount of tax based on the population, income level, all those things. You know, they were very actually advanced. It wasn't just some roughshod, you know, caveman type of a thing. They are very advanced and they knew exactly, they did censuses, as we saw in chapter 1, um, and they made sure that everybody paid a fair amount of tax. And so there was basically a number placed on that region, based on the locality, the industry, everything. And that number had to be paid by that tax collector to the Roman government. 
Now, there was also numbers and charts that they were given that, that they were to assess. So like if they, they, they would have a toll road that basically was the main route from maybe Galilee to Judea. And as they sat on that road, there was a toll tax. So basically, a, you know, basically like if you're going over a toll bridge or you're going on a parkway where you have to pay, um, you know, like if you went down to Salt Lake or over to L.A., sometimes there's toll roads and a lot of them back, back east where you have to pay a toll to, to ride on that road. And that's what they would do. They, they assess you a toll to ride on that road, but they would also assess you um, a tax, a tariff, on goods that you were transporting from one place to another. So if you had a, a trailer full of fish, they literally would stop you, they would count all the fish, and then they would assess you a tax. And that was just the way that it was. And it was, a, it was a legal thing to do. However, a lot of the tax collectors would assess more and tax you on things, you know, and, and you couldn't pay, then you, they, would, they would charge you high interest on back taxes and all these other things that they would do. Um, and it wasn't really fair you know, the things that they were doing. If they would just do what they were supposed to, not collect more than they were supposed to, they would make a good living for themselves. No question. But oftentimes they would take more. And this is why when Jesus saw Zacchaeus and Zacchaeus said, if I've charged anybody more than I should have, I will pay back fourfold. Jesus says, salvation has come to this house. This is a fruit of salvation. This guy who says, I've been ripping people off, I'm going to pay him back. Fourfold, which was the requirement by the law, to pay them back. It, it was because tax collectors did that. And they were hated by the people. Um, they were Jews who had basically sold out to the Roman government to collect taxes. Hated by the people. And likewise, verse 14, soldiers asked him, and these would be like police officers. They were both police and soldiers, saying, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not intimidate anyone or accuse falsely and be content with your wage. What were they doing? They were intimidating and accusing falsely. In other words, they would go into a neighborhood and they would take bribes. People were intimidated to, to give them bribes for protection or so that, and, you know, if, hey, if you, don't, you don't give us some money for protection, then we're going to tell them that you've been breaking the law and we're going to arrest you. And so there was this whole thing happening. This happens in third world countries, right? Happens in mafia controlled places. And that's kind of what was happening. And so he's saying, be content with the wages you get and stop bullying people. Notice he didn't tell them to quit their jobs, to become monks, to stop collecting taxes. We would like that, wouldn't we? <laughs> no more taxes. No, he's, he's saying these things are all needed. He didn't say defund the police. He didn't say stop collecting taxes. He didn't say collect more taxes. He just said collect what you're supposed to, collect a reasonable amount, and he doesn't encourage them to be pacifists. He just encourages them to live differently than they were living. In other words, live Righteously, live uprightly, do the right thing in whatever industry you're working in. And that is a fruit of salvation. It says in verse 15, now the, as the people were in expectation, all reasoned in their hearts about John, whether he was the Christ or not. So they, that was one of the draws. You know, as they, they hear this guy preaching repentance, they come out to the Jordan. Is he the Christ? You know, is this, is this guy the Messiah? John answered and, say, and saying to all, so everybody who came, Indeed, I baptize you with water, but one mightier than I is coming, whose sandal strap I'm not worthy to loose. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. In other words, I'm not worthy to be this man's slave. The lowest person in the household would take off your sandals and wash your feet. He says, I'm not even worthy to do that. This man is so great, but he's going to baptize you not in water, but in the Holy Spirit and fire. 
Notice his winnowing fan is in his hand. And he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. And with many other exhortations, he preached to the people. The question is, John, are you the Messiah? He's saying, I'm not the Messiah. There's one coming greater than I. And he is going to baptize you, not in water, but in the Holy Spirit and fire. Now, now of course, the first part of this, baptizing the Holy Spirit, happened on the day of Pentecost. Happens to the believer as they put their faith in Jesus Christ. It's promised to us as Christians. And, and that happened in Acts chapter 2. Of course, we saw, we saw that if we read through the Acts chapter, Acts chapter 2, we see on the day of Pentecost that the Holy Spirit came upon everyone in the upper room. They began to speak in tongues and they began to um, glorify God. And then Peter preached and 3,000 people were saved. Right before that, in 10 days earlier, Jesus said to them in Acts chapter 1, verse 4 and 5, it says, being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me, for John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And so they're, gonna, they're going to be baptized in the Holy Spirit, and that happened on the day of Pentecost and happens for the believer. But then there's another baptism, the baptism of fire, that's still yet to come. Now, I think that we, we kind of correlate that sometimes, and I know I have in the past, you know, when I first started reading the Bible, with the cloven tongues of fire that landed on them on the day of Pentecost. That's not what he's talking about. In fact, that's the only time that we know of that that specifically happened. But this fire speaks of the fire of judgment. Jesus will collect the wheat. In other words, he's going to, at the rapture of the church, take his church. He's going to collect the people. And then at the end of the tribulation, he's going to reap the earth. And if you know what happens on, on that day, the earth will be reaped. I think it's, it's Revelation chapter 14. That scene is, is um, laid out for us. In Matthew chapter 25, where he gathers the nations together, the earth is reaped, the nations are gathered together, he separates the wheat from the chaff, or the sheep from the goats, and then he throws the goats into the lake of fire that is prepared for the devil and his angels. This is what he's talking about. So first of all, he's going to baptize those who believe in him in the Holy Spirit, but then he's going to baptize the earth in fire in judgment, his winnowing fan is in his hand and he's going to collect them and separate the wheat from the chaff and burn the, the chaff in unquenchable fire. This is a serious thing. In other words, his message is turn or burn, repent or face the baptism of fire. And nobody wants to face that. Verse 19, it says, but Herod the Tetrarch being rebuked by him concerning Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, and for all the evils which Herod had done, also added this, above all, that he shut John up in prison. Now Herod Antipas was, of course, the son of Herod the Great. The apple, crab apple didn't far, fall far from the tree in this case. You know, he was a pretty wicked guy. Herodias, his brother's wife, Philip, his brother's wife, his half-brother, um, came to visit. And they fell in love with each other. And so she d divorced Philip and he married her, committing adultery with her. Now, if that wasn't bad enough, she was, he was committing adultery. He stole his brother's wife from him. But then, on top of that, she was not just his brother's wife, but she was his sister Bernice's daughter. So it was his niece. Yuck. 
So not only incest, but also adultery. And then if, the, if things weren't bad enough, then her daughter, his brother's daughter, his niece, and his great-niece, whichever side you want to look at it, is now dancing before him and pleasing him. He's drunk off his gourd, watching this woman dance, and he's so enticed by this young woman with lust that he offers her half to his kingdom. And what does she say? Give me John the Baptist's head on a platter at her mother's request because John would say this. And so just a, a really um, morally depraved family. Um, and, and John stood up for what was right, and it cost him his life. And sometimes we have to do that as Christians. You know, John did what was right and it cost him his life. Notice this, verse 21, it says, And all the people were baptized. It came to pass that Jesus also was baptized. And while he prayed, the heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended in bodily form like a dove upon him. And the voice came from heaven, which said, You are my beloved Son, in you I am well pleased. So Jesus comes to John, and the other Gospels tell us the exchange. You know, John's like, I shouldn't be baptizing you. You should baptize me. And Jesus says, no, it shall be done that all righteousness shall be fulfilled. And so John submits to him and baptizes him. And as he's baptized and John praying over him, the heaven opens. I don't know what this was like. Was it the clouds parted or was it like the veil was pulled back like a wormhole? And all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit, as a dove in bodily form, we don't really understand what that means. It's like a dove, not a dove, but like a dove, comes and comes into Jesus, fills him with the Holy Spirit, you know, a physical manifestation. And at the same time, we see the Trinity at work. The, the father says, you are my beloved son and you I'm well pleased. It, it, it's such a beautiful scene there. Now, the, the, the cultists will say, well, obviously, look, there are three separate gods, you know, the Holy Spirit, you know, and the, and the father, how can they all be at the same place? Well, we understand as Christians, as Trinitarians, that God is three beings, three people, one substance, you know, one God. You know, the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God. Not three gods, but one God in three persons. And that's what the Bible teaches about the Trinity. In fact, Elohim, the name for God in the Old Testament, is plural, right? God, it always uses it as a masculine singular, but, you know, just like a cherub is a single angel and a cherubim is a is multiple angels. El is single God, and which is also used of God. But then Elohim, which is plural, is also used of God. It says, and he said, you know, let there be light. You know, and, and God said, that would, let there be light. And then, then what he saw that it was good. He, masculine singular. He saw that it was good. And, and so that's the way that God is. The Jews will tell you it's a majestic plural. He's too good to be just God. So they call him gods. But we as Christians understand that God exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Just like we see in John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, the Word is with God, the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and He created everything that was created. You know, it tells us in John chapter 1, verse 1 through 3. And so, um, the mystery of, of the Trinity, it's manifested here in such a beautiful way. All agreeing together, all one in purpose and in Godhead. But he says to Jesus, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. The father is well pleased with him. You know, I think this is something that we have trouble with in our lives. The, the father is well pleased with Jesus, but how, do, how does 
how can God be well pleased with me? And I think a lot of times we walk around thinking, you know, God couldn't accept me or God doesn't like me or, or I, I keep messing up and I try very hard. And we honestly believe in our lives that repentance and good works are what make, makes God happy with us. And so we kind of have this rating system for ourselves, like, okay, I'm doing really good. You know, maybe I'm at a 10 right now, but then I have a bad week and now maybe I'm going to rate myself as a 5 or a 4 in my worthiness to, to, for God to accept me and, and to get into heaven. But is that the way that it works? How, how do I find myself well-pleasing to God? It's very simple. Find yourself in Jesus Christ. And when we are in Christ... We're a new creation. God no longer looks at us. He doesn't look at our sin. He looks at his finished work of his son, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for our sins. It doesn't, it doesn't bifurcate, it doesn't, or it doesn't bypass, excuse me, it doesn't bypass repentance. Repentance is where I say, I no longer want to live for myself. I want to live for God. But Jesus comes in and he cleanses us from all of our sin. He is salvation. And so it's a beautiful union as as Jesus comes into our life, that he cleanses us from sin. And now as I walk in the light, as he is in the light, then I have fellowship with other people who are Christians. And the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses me from all sin. If I say I don't have sin, I'm a liar. And the truth of God is not in me. But if I can confess my sin, he is faithful and just to forgive me my sin and cleanse me from all unrighteousness. You know, that's the relationship we have with God through Jesus Christ. That he loves me, and he cleanses me. That was 1 John um, 7, verse 7 through 9. 1 John 1, 7 through 9. He does that for us. And so my relationship with God is based on his goodness and his love and his glory. And so he's calling us, every single one of us, just like John was calling the, the multitudes to repent. Jesus calls us to repent. God calls us to repent. The Holy Spirit is speaking to us. The the Holy Spirit comes into the world to convict us of sin and righteousness and judgment. Why? So that we would turn back to God. Every once in a while, there'll be somebody who comes on the scene who is that voice crying in the wilderness, preparing the way of the Lord. I don't know about you, but for me, that voice was Keith Green. Keith Green's whiny song voice. That was what was it was for me because I remember as a young as a young man my sister came home and she had a tape that her friend ripped off for her um, that was a a Keith Green album and and she a tape is like a little plastic thing that we used to listen to music on when when you know old people were young and and um I I, she'd be listening to this I was like what are you listening to and she's like it's Keith Green it's amazing I was like it doesn't sound amazing but then I, I, I don't know, there was something about this, this voice that just kept drawing me in and the things he was saying was so convicting to me. And then I asked her, can you make me a copy of that tape? And so she did. And I, and I was torturing myself because I, I hated it, but I loved it, but I hated it. And I'd listen to it in my car and I'd, I'd pull out my Metallica, my Def Leppard, and I'd put that tape in. And I'd just be like driving in the car. I'm like, why am I doing this to myself? But the Holy Spirit was calling me to Repentance. And I, and I began to realize, you know, I need a change. I need to do something different with my life. I need, I need Jesus in my life. And, and that led ultimately to that moment when I knelt down next to my bed and gave my life to Jesus Christ. But there's always that, that voice that's crying to us. The Holy Spirit speaking through a person or through a music or, or through just through our heart, into our hearts. To repent, turn, 
Make a highway in your heart for God to have leadership, to have control over your, over your life. Let the king come in. And maybe that's for you this morning. You stand with me, let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for John the Baptist and his ministry. So different than many ministries and yet so needed today. And I pray, Lord, that we would be prepared in our hearts for you to come in, to, to you, for you to rule, for you to reign in our hearts. That we would repent, that we would turn. That we would say, I, I don't want to live like I've been living. I don't want to cheat. I don't want to lie. I don't want to steal. I don't want to live for the lusts of my flesh anymore. I want to live for you, God. I want to allow you to have, to have dominion, to have leadership, to have rule in my heart, Lord. That that highway would be made. That the rough places would be made smooth. That those mountains would be crushed down and the valleys filled. And that Jesus, you would come in. That you'd pave the way, Lord. That you'd become my God. Lord, we just thank you so much for the salvation that you offer through Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for our sins, who rose from the grave conquering death. And we put our trust in him, God. We put our trust in you, Jesus. We need you every hour. And for those of you who've been here walking with the Lord for a long time, maybe it's just time to say, yeah, I I need to put away the things of this world, to, to turn things off and just to focus on God. Just to take that time to renew our hearts. And so God, we just offer that to you. Renew us. Refresh us, fill us with your spirit, and continue to grow us in you, Jesus, during these crazy times we live in. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.